Hey world, welcome to the show. Today I have the opportunity to sit down and share with you guys somebody that I have known for quite a while and that I have a deep respect for. His name is Mr. Ryan Nesbitt and uh, he has quite an interesting story that deals with suicide and uh, how that has shaped his life and, and his future and now how he has come alongside and he is dealing with suicide prevention and what, uh, what that looks like in our community and what impacts that's having in our state and in our country and you know in the world altogether. So I hope that you enjoy listening, Mr. Ryan Nesbitt. Ryan Nesbitt, how are you today? I am good, Phil. <laughs> good. Well, hey, man, thanks for inviting me over and, and sitting down with me for a few minutes. Um, you know, in, in thinking about people that have really good things that they're doing, especially community-wise, I thought about you, you know. I, I know one of the, one of the things that, that we've done together is um, there's a race in Dunkerton, Iowa, and I mean, it's, it's north, we're, it's north of us like an hour and- Two hours. Two hours from, yep. from, from Des Moines Metro. Um, and you know, for being a small town, it was amazing how many people were there. And I know that your race uh, supports suicide prevention and awareness, right? Is yes. that how you guys put it? Um, and I just really wanted to kind of explore how you got there. You know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, it's kind of neat. I know that you're, you know, I know that you kind of laugh about being a full-time volunteer. <laughs> but uh, I think that... I think that what you're doing is pretty amazing. It's shedding light on some things, especially on topics that I don't know that much about. Um, so it's up in, in Dunkerton, which is a small town. How did you pick this small town two hours north of a major city to, to do this race? Yeah, well, Dunkerton is by Waterloo, Cedar Falls. Uh, there's a lot of small towns. That's where I'm from, is okay. Dunkerton. It is about 800 people, somewhere around there, seven to 800. I grew up there in the country, so I went to school at Dunkerton, which is like 32 people per class, which is really hard to... So, so you know everybody in your, in you your know school, right? You know everybody and everything. It's hard to associate living in Ankeny now where there's two high schools and thousands of people. Uh, so Dunkerton's where I grew up. That's why we chose to have this event there. Uh, and usually, we've had the event seven years. Usually we have more people attend than live in the town. That's crazy. So usually we're right around 1,000 runners, walkers at the 5K. Nice. Uh, it started in 2010. Uh, just me and a buddy, Troy Belmer, who grew up together. So we're friends for life since kindergarten because you really don't know that many people. Because you, you got 30 <laughs> friends, right? There aren't very many options, so you stick together. So. Uh, we randomly picked the name. Maybe we borrowed it from California, and now we are alive and running Iowa. California also has an alive and running. That's in LA, so that one's a little bit bigger. They <laughs> <laughs> said, who, who are these guys that are in a little small town in Iowa? What are they doing? They did. They, that's a funny story, but that would take a half hour. S send you a beautiful letter. We had some communication, yeah. So we are alive and running Iowa. Uh, 
2010 is when we came up with it and we just wanted to have a 5k just a one day we thought maybe 50 people would come and they'd all be relatives we had no clue and i'm pretty sure the first year we had 440 wow so run and walk a little better than expectation yeah and then it i think year two was close to 700 then year three we started to hit a thousand people that would register not everybody comes the day of the event uh, most of the people that come probably 80 percent have some sort of association with a suicide loss in their life and then maybe 20 percent just want to come run because it's a 5k and we're really cheap and i'm a runner also so i like having runners come in but the majority of the people there are for the cause that's that's amazing so what what got you and your and your buddy involved in you know i mean there's a lot of things that you could run for you know i mean there's a it seems to be a 5k every other weekend yes you know uh what got you specifically involved in suicide awareness yeah there are too many 5ks because <laughs> i'm a race director and it's it's actually hurting us now this last year we were down a little bit because there's just too many 5ks there's a 5k you could do 152 weeks a year in Iowa on a weekend. So we are very specific and unique because I don't know of any other suicide prevention 5Ks. There's walks, but not a uh, run walk. Uh, from Dunkerton, as I grew up, I grew up on a farm. And so, you know, you know everybody. And this is before cell phones and stuff. I was born in 75. This is where you had the rotary phone or whatever in the house <laughs> Went to out talk to, to people. On the farm, you had to go out to the well to get your water. Uh, we had indoor plumbing. All right. <laughs> so you just step, step one step up. Shockingly. Uh, so you're pretty tight with everybody. There's cliques and groups, you know, athletes, whatever, blah, blah, blah. The same thing you see in every high school. Everywhere. But you still kind of back each other because you are so small. Uh, so we had close friends. I had a good friend named Roger who I grew up with. He was a farm kid, so I would actually go and do work for his parents at their farm. Uh, overweight kid who probably about age 12 or so decided to make change and just became a weightlifting beast. So he had gone from, you know, chubby and maybe getting picked on and by the time he was 15, well, he kind of looked like you <laughs> you do now. He was a machine, and people were scared of him because he was tough. But he didn't get to play very many sports because of the rural that happened to a lot of us, myself too, where you had to do so much work. Just not the opportunities to Right, there's to just not, there's not time because parents need you on the farm working which makes sense. It stinks when you're going through it because you just want to do what everybody else is doing. So he was kind of an angry kid uh, as a teenager. Uh, we were sophomores in high school and he was kind of changing a lot. You know, small town Iowa, there's not much to do. So by that age, people are drinking and you know, your excitement is driving gravel roads or going to the big city of Waterloo. <laughs> There's just really not that many activities. So he was kind of falling into that a little bit. At that point in time, I was very spiritual. Uh, so the friendship was kind of strained because I was kind of going God way. 
he was kind of going party fun way. But in the winter of, let's see, 90, 91, it was during basketball season. And you know, that's, we were sophomores. So I was a starter on the basketball team, which isn't any huge accomplishment in small town Iowa. <laughs> I started as a freshman too. I was actually pretty good, but there's not that many guys. There's not a big pool to, to draw select from. from for who's gonna play. So winter of 9091, basketball's going good. Uh, I didn't really notice anything different about him. He had a girlfriend playing hoops. He was always ticked off just because he, he couldn't perform as good as he wanted to. I think he didn't have a lot of athletic ability. He was just strong. Kind of like me. And trying, right, <laughs> and trying to play basketball. Some things happened in basketball that made him mad. I know that. I remember one night we were shooting free throws and he could not hit anything. So he was just slamming the ball off the backboard, which happened all the time. So I didn't think anything of it. But the next day in the morning, our phone rang at our house and my mom came and told me, you have any idea where Roger is? And we live six or seven miles apart, both in the country. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So she said his parents say he's missing. And I was like, I, I don't know. There's no, you know, there's no cell phones, there's no texting. So there's really no way to communicate. His parents can't find him. They don't know what's going on. So my mom decided, well, let's go to their house. My parents were EMTs, well known in the community. That's just kind of the thing you do. If somebody needs help, you go help them. So we went to his house and talked to his parents and no clue. Nobody knows where he's at. We thought maybe he walked to school, which didn't make much sense because there's like a foot of snow. It's January now, 91, and he's three or four miles from town. Maybe he's hiding somewhere in their buildings on the farm because huge farm, you know, 10, 20 buildings. Big machine sheds all over. Everywhere, chicken area, just everything. Or maybe he's at someone else's house. I know there was a lot of phone calls made. So we're like, I don't know, we gotta go to school. Maybe he'll show up. But then as my mom and I started driving to school, we decided to go a different way on gravel just to see, we would drive by another friend's house, maybe we would see something. And as we were driving, I saw shoe prints in the snow. And I thought, whoa, I think we're onto something. So we went back to his parents and got some winter stuff on and we're like, we just need to go follow the footprints because what, <laughs> what else do you why, do? Why are there footprints three miles out of town? Right, yeah. out in the middle of the country, nobody knows where he is. So his mom and dad and myself went and started walking through the snow. My mom didn't go with us because she always had knee problems and that wouldn't have been a good idea. But we walked for a while, it was cold, and we kind of went through some trees and we're out by a pond. And I remember his dad was walking on the creek on the ice. So I was walking with his mom, Barb, and then I saw in the distance like a coat and I'm a 15-year-old kid, born on a farm, kind of sheltered, you know, not much access to TV, movies, small town kid. Never, you know, instantly I didn't think, crap, that's him. I just thought, why is his coat laying out here in the snow? And then we kept walking closer and I could kind of see skin. 
and then I was thinking other thoughts real quick. Uh, and his mom and I got closer and she was screaming, I remember that. And his dad was trying to run through the snow towards us. And then I could see him laying on the ground, face up and blood all over his face. And man, just sitting here talking about it, I can remember his mom yelling some cursing God, just why, why? So we found his body out in the snow. That day's kind of a blur, January 8th of 91. So then it's kind of slow communication. They had to get a tractor and bucket to plow a path because we're out in the middle of a cornfield. Uh, I remember the coroner van was there and I sat in it for a while to stay warm. People just started showing up. You know, my dad came, other farmers. I remember one other teenage kid was there. And I remember sitting in the coroner's van and right in front of me was a brown paper sack and the gun was in it. And wow. I briefly remember thinking, I'm gonna do the same thing. It was just sitting there. Like, I hope there's better standards in place now because it was, you know, within a hand's reach. And then the rest of the day was chaos. It, uh, I kind of went and saw him again in the snow with my parents and firefighters and EMTs and his parents. Then went to school, which was absolute shock. Small school, you know, they'd been hearing rumors all morning. Murder, Where's, somebody killed him. You know, rumors just fly in a small yeah. town and nobody really knew what was going on until I got to school. And then it was, that was bad. So, I mean, so you, you get to school, I mean, <laughs> first off, I mean, I can't imagine even experiencing something like that and then <clears throat> trying to go through the rest of the day like it's normal. I gotta go take my math test. Right. You know, what was the, the feeling amongst the rest of your peers? I mean, were they, I mean, now, you know, if anything happens in a school, there's, they bring in 30 counselors to sit and they talk with anybody who wants to talk and they do these things. And, you know, as a, as a kid, when I was in high school, I'm a little younger than you, but I never remember that stuff. You know, did they have any sort of resources for you guys at the time? There were, but minimal. And that has a lot to do with my life now, which I'll get into, but it was just shock, just like a zombie roaming you know, hugs and people crying and his girls hysterical. Uh, teachers didn't know what to do. I mean, this is small town Iowa. Stuff like this doesn't this happen. This doesn't happen here. You know, 20 miles down the road in Waterloo, there's murder. That stuff happens, but not out in the country. A suicide. Uh, I remember sitting with his brother, who was probably in eighth grade, and he was just stunned. No emotion, just really clueless. Um, I'm not even sure what happened at school for a couple days. It was semester test time, which are important tests. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure they just gave me C's because they would give me the papers and I just sit there and not write anything. It's okay to joke once in a while. That was a pretty consistent grade for me <laughs> in high school. <laughs> but those should have been F's in that instance. I know you could go to the library and see a counselor or go to the nurse and that poor lady, I mean, not qualified and this is just getting dumped on her. She did the best she could, great woman. 
I can't remember how many days it was. There was a funeral. We had to play a basketball game that morning, a JV basketball game. That was intense. Because he should have been there He would have been playing, playing right? right? The parents wanted us close friends to play. We're just like, all right, we'll play. I don't know if we won or lost, but I think we just collapsed on the floor when the game was over because we knew we were going to a funeral. Uh, the funeral was tough. Some good tunes. Roger was a rock man. He like he could play guitar. So there was a poison. The old hair band. Yeah. So, oh, something to believe in, which is a good tune. And sticks. Show me the way. Um, but then there was no burial because they had him cremated. But all that is just kind of a blur of just shock, and you don't know how to react. You're yeah. you're so young, and there's no class teaching you how how you're supposed to feel in that situation yeah being being so young and kind of unequipped to handle it um how did how did that affect i mean earlier you talked about how you were kind of exploring your faith digging a little deeper into your faith um and then something like this happens how does that affect your faith well leading into that i was i was hardcore bible thumper um I would sit and read my Bible in study hall. I had all kinds of t-shirts promoting Jesus, and that's the music I would listen to. Like, uh, man, this is going way back, like Striper and like Hard Rock for Jesus, Yeah, which not a lot of people had heard about, but there was some good stuff. So I was pretty hardcore, uh, on the right track in life, walking with Christ, and then that happened and just, whoo, 100% flip. Wow. Because I was just like, why, why? My my God is supposed to be love, and life is supposed to be good, and follow Jesus, and I'm supposed to get rewarded or something, and this happens? Yeah, Screw you, God. Not, not the rewards you were looking for. Right. Um, so now, is your family a family of faith, too, at the time? Very strong faith. Uh, yeah, very, very strong. We grew up with the you know, Bible every morning, reading together and prayer and attending church services all the time. Almost too much. That's a different discussion. But yeah. my, my parents are fantastic, but it was they were a hardcore family of faith. So now so now you've kind of questioned why these things are happening and your family is still this did that did it make it more difficult at home now? being questioning some of these things and yet having a family that is still you know solid in their faith and right. you're kind of in the air juggling and and unknown my yeah my dad in recent years in adulthood we've discussed this and he looked back and said we didn't know what to do for you you were just like not even there as a human just saying things and that shouldn't have came out of my mouth. Everyone was shocked. Um, they were strong. They didn't know what to do with me or for me, and I was threatening killing myself. They had to sleep in front of my door for a couple nights. I remember that. I could have just gone out my window, but that, <laughs> that was later years of high school. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't figure that out, I guess. Um, so yeah, they were solid, just didn't know what to do, and I kept threatening suicide. I went out into a field one night, no weapons, but they had to chase me out in the snow through a cornfield. 
And finally, we got to the point where they're like, he has to be committed somewhere because he, he's a danger to we himself. We don't know what to do anymore. Right. So I what? But same as now, not enough beds. So I had to wait. That problem hasn't gotten better. So I went to a hospital for a couple days. I had enough sense to realize, man, I don't want to be here. So I just told the doctor, I'm fine. They let you go. And then I went home a couple days. I think I tried to play basketball and failed. Need to go back to the hospital. So I went back to a different hospital. I can't even remember if it was four days or a week, but I played the same game again and said, I'm good. I'm healed. I'm all better. Send me home. And I think I was worse than, than when I had gone in. Um, so two times in hospitals, that was, you see some things there. Wow. That was yeah. crazy. But so there was some medication there. I don't think I took any once I got home because that's a whole different argument and story. I didn't want any part of that. So then I was home. You got to go to school. You're 15 years old, a sophomore in high school. I think I just kind of limped my way through the rest of that school year. But then as I got like age 16 or so, it was rebellion time. That was my way to deal. I was way far away from God. Alcohol came in, doing stuff I never should have done. And if my children do that stuff, <laughs> which I'm sure they'll do some of it. But yeah, I was like a 180 in life from this awesome Christian kid at age 14 to age 16. I was just terrible. Two years later, it's somebody that's not even recognizable almost. Yeah, and it got worse. So, but we made it through high school. Um, graduation was hard because that would have been two and a half years after Roger died. So that was a hard day because you're, you know, one out of 32 is not here. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. And there was kind of an emphasis on that with people speaking and stuff. So we made it through high school. Uh, college, if I can go into that, yeah. was kind of... Yeah, we can go wherever you need, man. You know, you do a lot of things when you're 18, 19 that are fun or you're going to make bad decisions. You're, you're out of the house now. Nobody really to answer to at all. You're somewhat an adult. And I worked enough. I had a good enough work ethic that I could work enough to fuel my fun desires. Um, and I was a pretty fun guy. I'm not promoting getting drunk a lot, but I was the life of the party. But then something would click, whether it's 10th beer to 11th beer or whatever. You would hit a point of just, I'm going to fight everybody or I'm just going to go cry in the corner. So it was fun, 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 party, Ryan's funny, this is awesome, but there was always someone watching and they're like, oh, now he's going, so people need to leave or yeah. we need to take him somewhere. And it was horrible for a couple of years, that would happen. Just flip a switch. Or I would just yeah. take off walking, disappear, draw, almost blackout drunk and he's gone, he'll show up. And this is still before cell phones too. Yeah. What a horrible pressure I put on my friends. Um, but yeah, that was terrible. That's where you make friends for life, is people that stick with you through that. See you at your worst. Yeah, yeah. for a long period of time. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I think at least we know now where, where you've kind of come from. Um, 
So you have your race, and then are you involved in other groups and organizations yes. as well then? What, what else are you doing? Okay, yeah, so I think we covered the background. Uh, I'm 41 now. My oldest child is nine. Um, I've been married 15 years. So probably about age 30, 31, maybe when my wife was pregnant, things really changed then with maturing. You yeah. know, some guys don't mature till they're 30 or 40. <laughs> it took a while. I'm still working <laughs> on work, it. Work in progress. But that really hits you when you have your first child. Um, I had an OWI in 2005. That kind of reshifted some focus of, we better get some stuff straight because this we're going down a bad path. That's, I think about in that area is when we moved to Ankeny from Grinnell. Um, so a lot of things were changing for the better. Then I found Prairie Ridge Church, which is where I go in Ankeny. So there, there was a whole kind of season there of life change from, you know, college, life of the party. Now he had too much, now he's going crazy. Some of that stuff happened early in marriage with, you know, you're out of college, you're in your late 20s, you should probably not be doing that stuff anymore. Um, but then things started getting good. I reconnected with God, started having kids, um, started focusing on career, whatever, wife's career, and doing better things. And then in 2010, so yeah, we've had our event seven years. My buddy from elementary, high school, post high school, we said, we gotta do something. We're adults now. Uh, this suicide thing is horrible what we went through and it's happening all the time. There's one a day in Iowa, we gotta do something. So that's kinda how we came up with Alive and Running. So, so there's one a day in, in Iowa at least. Um, is that number fluctuated in the last few years? Is it up, is it down? It's is going it, up. It's, it's going up. The data is really hard to record. If you read a newspaper anymore, they, they're still not gonna write died by suicide. But if you read the obits and somebody's you know, under age 30 and it doesn't list car accident, cancer, it's, you can pretty much tell they probably took their own life. Um, and not all suicides are recorded as suicides. If it's a teenager, maybe sometimes parents will say, you get a head injury or I don't know how all that stuff works with the coroner and stuff, but a lot of people are still ashamed of of putting it out there. I don't want this to be listed as a suicide. You know, it's uh, in the, uh, when the economy went down in 2008, um, <clears throat> my wife works for a nursing college and I had reduced tuition. So I, had, I went and uh, took some classes to be an EMT. And with that, I had to do uh, like a clinical rotation through ambulances and the ER and different things like that. And one of the things that actually surprised me a lot was the number of attempted suicides. You know, I, I can't say that I ever had an actual suicide that, at least in, the, in, my, in my short time of doing that, um, I never had an actual death from suicide, but the amount of people who would take handfuls of pills, um, you know, you would show up and they're threatening something or, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it was just, it was amazing that I didn't realize it was that prevalent until I was in that position. And I mean, other than that, I had a, uh, a buddy named Ryan who he was my roommate. 
straight out of high school. The first guy that, you know, we went and got an apartment together and we kind of grew apart for a little while and uh, and he later committed suicide. Um, it was a, a gunshot suicide as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just, I went to the funeral and, and it was kind of, it was different, you know? I mean, right. our relationship wasn't what it used to be and, and those things, but I mean, it's still sad and to see his parents have to go through that and, you know, personally, I don't know what resources that there were. Um, and so I'm hoping that, you know, you can shed some of that stuff on us with some of the different yeah. groups and organizations and things too. Um, because yeah, I mean, I think it's far more prevalent than any of us really, I mean, at least guys like me realize, so. Yeah, it's, I'll just try to keep it to U.S. I think national, it's so hard to keep track because some third world countries and of how many are suicides, it's a huge number. Nationally, it's like 43,000 in the U.S., which is, I think it's one every 13 minutes. Wow. That's in the United States. When I started to get into prevention work, it was like every 19 minutes. So it is going up drastically. Um, Iowa in 2014 was 407 recorded suicides. The data is always two or three years behind, but that's I think that's the highest number I've seen. Maybe 2015 was released and it was like 440. For quite a while it was right around 365, but it's slowly creeping up, going up. And Iowa's you know not a heavily populated state. So there's some areas that are horrible. It's horrible with like Native Americans. I mean, I read stories, I think there's one group in North Dakota, there might be one in Alaska, where it's just like almost daily. Yeah. It's just constant, it's horrible. You know, and the work, you know, I, I do work with quite a few veterans organizations, and amongst veterans, it's it's sickening at the, the amount of suicides that are there and uh, the lack of resources that are available for them. Yeah, those are, most people think it's 22 a day because a lot of people have been doing push-ups and filming. It's the latest I've heard is it's 20, but that's, one is too many. So whether it's 20 or 22 is irrelevant. It's way too many per day. Uh, So in Iowa, it's every 22 hours there's a suicide in Iowa. And in the U.S. is every 13 minutes. Um, also, yeah, the U.S. is 117 suicides per day. And the highest rate now is middle-aged white men, which the category is 45 to 64. That's wow. kind of a big category. The teen numbers aren't as high, but those are the ones I think that are the most impactful, at least to me, because you're a teenager. You haven't even started. Yeah. it's. I do youth group work, you know that, in Ankeny, and these kids, you know, you haven't even done one-fifth of your life yet, and they're, you just try to be an example. They're crushed if they break up or something, and it's good to come in and say, It's not the end of the world. You're 16. (laughs) Yeah. I know it hurts, but great things are still coming. Yeah. And that's what really crushes me is teenagers that die by suicide. My friend Roger, you haven't even started. Yeah. I wonder what he would have become, but he, there's no chance. He's yeah. gone. Uh, the men die more by suicide. It used to be four times as much, but now female suicides have increased. 
recently, so it's three and a half, three and a half times as much where males die, and males usually use guns. Yeah. Females will attempt more, more usually pills, whether that's just a cry for help or trying to get attention or they're legit trying to kill themselves. Usually when females attempt, it's pills and they'll live, but the males usually go straight to gun and it's wow. one and done. You know, and, and with the pills, I mean, there's sometimes irreparable damage that you're doing to your body, you know, and so even if it's unsuccessful, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the stuff that you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life is, is another thing and it reminds you all the time about right. the poor decision that you, you tried to make. Um, so you talked about like a cry for help or different things like that. Um, I know in the, you know, in the news recently, uh, you know, we've seen where they're cutting, there was, it was amazing to me, maybe a handful of facilities in the whole state and they cut two or three of them out, you know, either four or five facilities and you're cutting two or three of them out. What kind of resources are there for, for people who need that help? Right. Good question. Well, in Iowa, it's not good. Uh, I'll try to dance my way through this. I did shake the good governor's hand a few weeks ago for suicide week. He signed a proclamation. Thanks. I wanted to say a few other things to him, but because he was partially responsible or maybe he is fully responsible for cutting the facilities. I can't remember if it was Independence or Eldora or Mount Pleasant. It's a mess. I've had a recent phone call with someone at Mercy in Des Moines in an ICU with her son. He didn't need to be in ICU. That's just the only place they could put him. He's waiting for a bed. And as I had said earlier, when I was 15 and needed to go somewhere, I had to wait for a bed. So in 26 years, we have not progressed in Iowa or nationally for mental health care. I was actually, we were discussing earlier 51st, because we're, we're behind District of Columbia. <laughs> And mental health, I think it's mental health bed availability. I just heard a speaker recently, I think Iowa, the University of Iowa is where like psychiatrists, psychologists come out of college. Yeah. Well, I believe they said last year, zero of them stayed in Iowa. So they get educated here and then they go somewhere else. And that Iowa only has maybe 300 total psychiatrists, psychologists. That's and that's crazy. The need is so, hundreds of thousands of people. What it, what are they? You might not know, but what are they anticipating these people leaving for? Is it just there's not jobs here for them, or is it a pay thing? I think or? it's the pay thing was the main reason. Um, there's a huge problem, so people like me can come in and volunteer and try to help. It becomes very frustrating many days because you feel like you're taking ten steps backwards when you take one forward, but if we can get more people to rise up, one of the biggest issues is politics, government, which I, you know me personally, I'm not the smartest guy on earth, so I try not to get too involved in that, but that's, you gotta get some kind of legislation passed. I don't know, it's just one step at a time. We're talking about having a state capital day. Anytime you can get on TV, or in the newspaper promoting mental health. Put I think a that's a pressure positive. on people. 
Yeah, because we got to get rid of stigma, and people need to know if you need help, try to find it. If yeah. you feel suicidal, which I did for many years, you got to tell somebody because you can get, and I did too, you can get so lost. I made it sound like I was drunk all the time when I was down, but I would be down at eight o'clock in the morning just thinking, this is pointless, this is worthless. I'm gonna go drive my car off a bridge because there's nothing worth living for. Yeah. And that's moments like that. You gotta have a buddy or a pastor or a help number you can call. You gotta have something. Somebody that you can at least talk to and, right. and, and be open with yeah so so in the <clears throat> process of trying to come through and and get those you know your capital day get the on the news on the in the paper different things like that what organizations are doing that here I mean you're you're two hours north of here right. so obviously you got to have some people here too are there are there different organizations that you're helping here yep okay so the alive and running is out of Dunkerton. I live in Ankeny. My buddy lives in Waterloo, which is close to Dunkerton. But we recently became a 501c3, finally. So we're not just a one-day event. Okay. Uh, we're limited. I mean, we're not counselors, but we're just kind of trying to create awareness. Billboards, website, car stickers. If people contact us, we try to push them to counselors so you, you have resources available yeah. for people who would reach out to you bigger websites with more info help lines 1-800-273-TALK that's the big nationwide 1-800-273-TALK okay um, so alive and running's good it's more of a local kind of small town will kind of push you in the right direction we've spoke at schools um, we do what we can. I think we're affecting people, but we're smaller. I'm also part of AFSP. What does that stand thus, for? Thus the full-time volunteer job. <laughs> uh, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Okay. So they're www.afsp.org. So if you go on that, I mean, you can read for three days. So they're based out of New York. Um, my quote boss is in Chicago, so she's in charge of the Midwest, like 14 states. So my role in Iowa is I'm on a chapter board. We call it a chapter. We finally got a chapter here a year ago. So I'm the co-chair, I'm the co-captain. I like to say I'm the, the highest ranking non-paid suicide prevention person in Iowa. <laughs> That's my joke. That's my role. Um, so I stepped into this, and it has become a 40-hour a week. It's a lot of phone calls, emails, conferences, meetings, speaking engagements, which a lot of times makes me personally feel like all I'm doing is going to meetings. Or, or is anything getting done? But I think we're making progress. Um, I will go ta I've talked to community colleges. I've talked to National Guard. There's a program called Talk Saves Lives, which is good, and I really want that to kind of go around Iowa. I haven't gotten into high schools yet. It's just kind of an intro to suicide prevention, stats, research, how to prevent, who to call if you're hurting. We just need to get the message out more. Because um, looking back, you know, 
in my late teens and 20s, I wouldn't say the word suicide. I wouldn't say the word Roger ever. Really? Because I just shut down, just stigma. If I met new people and they're talking about my life, I wouldn't even mention it. Like ashamed, I don't know. Now I talk about it every single day, all the time. Does that, personally, does that feel a little more liberating? I mean, it, for me, I think it's kind of neat because there, there was this young kid who missed opportunities in life, but yet he still has the ability to change lives through you and, and your organizations and, and the people that, that you come in contact with. And I mean, I think that that is a neat thing. You know what I mean? You haven't let that pass on. You haven't let that move. You've used it as a driving force now <clears throat> where before maybe it was yeah something something you weren't able to touch and, and move so it's it is powerful uh his parents are very thankful i still his brother lives in twin cities and we go to a couple cyclone games a year and hang out um it's powerful for other people from dunkerton like class of 93 and lots of classes on either side that it still affects. There's people I know that still haven't dealt with their grief that are 40, 41, 42 years old, kind of like I did for 15 years. So now, we, we've talked, that, that's kind of a thing that we haven't really touched on at all. So there are resources, for, you know, you gave the number for you know, somebody to talk to. Is, are there many resources for people who, you know, somebody who is, had, somebody commits suicide, somebody who is struggling with those things, are there resources for them as well? Yeah, those are, and I, you know me, I'm a 6'3", 190, but I'm a, I'm a tough dude, Phil. You know that. <laughs> I, I can tell by looking at you. Yeah. I'm a, I can run marathons, so I have some level of toughness. I, I can run a mile. <laughs> <laughs> You're working on it. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's something I forgot to mention that helped me. Finally, maybe at age 32, I went to a support group, which is mostly women, because A, it's mostly guys killing themselves, and B, not too many guys sign up to go sit in a circle and talk about their feelings. That's hard to do. But this support group was so good, it just you could just feel the weight being lifted once you open your mouth and talk about suicide, Roger, what happened and then you realize wow there's 15 other people here that lost their husband or son and it really frees you so in my volunteer work for AFSP that's one of the huge pushes we're making right now is creating more in Iowa I think right now we have 16 support groups that's the whole state I mean there should be 50 but it's one step at a time you got to get the right leaders in place um, to lead a group, they have to be ready. Usually this is people that have lost someone too. So they can't do that one year after their son killed himself because they're not, they're not ready for that. You got a long ways to go. Um, but that's a huge one. There are support groups and that info is on AFSP.org. But that's one of my main goals volunteering is to create more more of an opportunity to come together. And make sure that they're doing it right. Right. Making sure that they're, they're good, yeah. I, I imagine that, yeah, sitting, 
you know, it's hard to sometimes ask for that help when you need it. And, you know, you talk about there being far more women than men. And, and yeah, I think sometimes, sometimes men, we, we don't see it as being masculine or being, we can handle our own problems. We're going to suck right. it up and trudge through it. But some things are bigger than us, you know, right. some things we, we need help with. And, and I don't think there's shame and, and those kinds of things then reaching out and asking for help and being able to surround yourself with those people who might be feeling the same thing that you're feeling, might be going through the same thing you're going through and being able to, to have those conversations and know everybody in here understands me. Everybody in here knows what I'm feeling. It's safe, you know, so. It's a, suicide's just like a beast of its own. It's so different to grieve. Like two and a half years ago, my mom died of cancer, which is horrible. Cancer sucks. And she was 70. So, you know, I'm trying to compare a 70-year-old woman to a 15-year-old teenager. But, man, suicide's hard. Yeah. Because you just have so many questions. You do with cancer, too, but at least cancer you get sometime, whatever, and weeks, you, months, And years. you know there's an end date that's, right. that's coming. You know, it's not a surprise. The suicide, the hardest part for people after suicide is why, why? I would have done this different. Why? And people live with that their whole life. Why did my son do this? What could I have done? That's why you got to get together and talk with other people. So now when somebody is heading to a support group, what should they expect? I mean, you walk in, is it going to be... 21 questions your first time in there are you able to just kind of sit back and you know take it in and, mm -hmm. and listen to everybody else or is it one of those where they just push you to do outside your comfort zone day one sure good question the you know we try to get the ones in Iowa each one is unique and they don't all follow the same format the one I attended in Des Moines and this is how I prefer it you come you start at a certain time the one time you do have to talk at the beginning, you introduce yourself and they want you to say, I lost my friend Roger on January 8th, 1991. We really think if you can get those words out, that really can lift a burden off of you. That is all you have to say. If you don't want to talk at all, you can just sit the rest of the time. And a lot of people do that their first time. Yeah. If you can't even get those words out, it's okay. But I personally will attest that that is so freeing the first time you really formally say that I'm Ryan I am here because my friend Roger killed himself you just feel free because at least I did those are words you couldn't say for years right? forever for 15 years wow. right so that's how we prefer the groups to start they might not all do that and then you just go usually people will talk if it's quiet, there are trained facilitators. They will wait a while to give you room, but then they will kind of guide you with questions. Usually at least one of the facilitators has lost someone. So they have been on the same journey as the whole group. So they can really relate. Um, the hardest part about the groups though is getting people there. This is the issue we're coming across. You would, you would think with, you know, as many suicides, you know, over one a day, at least in, in our area, 
that there would be ample people banging on the doors right. to try to get into some of these groups to, to cope and to deal with their, you know, their losses. It's, you know, if there's 400 a year in Iowa, I think a suicide would dramatically affect at least 10 people. They say it affects at least 100, but I think huge effect would be 10. That's 4,000 people each year. So how come in Iowa in 16 groups, there's only, you know, 200 people that come on average. It doesn't quite, the math's a little off there. Um, but I have personally talked to people who are just afraid to go. So we're trying to find ways between alive and running volunteers and between AFSP of, you know, email Ryan, I'll go with you to the first meeting. I don't even know you, but let's meet wherever you are. I'll walk in with you. We're trying to get people to rise up and do that. Once you go once, man, you're kind of hooked because it's so good. But it's you got to get them in the door the first time. You feel that weight just come off. Yep. And there are other options. I mean, I'm a very spiritual person. I would expect every church on the planet to offer grief counseling or something where you could go talk to a pastor or an elder. Um, that is always an option, I think. You know, and in doing what I'm doing here, I've you know. I, most of most of the time I'm meeting people in churches and, and you know going into different places, even you know churches that I have no affiliation with. And I know that most of the large churches I've been in, you know, I was kind of looked through their pamphlets and things while I'm there. Most of them have some sort of a grief share type thing. Yeah. Um, some of the smaller churches, they really don't, you know, they don't have a big staff, they don't have those things. Um, but I know that in at least the churches that I that I know well, you can come. You can come and participate in those events there. And it's not like, hey, well, we better see you on Sunday. Well, you have your home church. You know right. what? They're just there to help you in your time of need and give you the resources that you need. You have a, you know, so I don't, I don't think somebody should be so hesitant to not, if their church doesn't have something, right. look around, you know. And so are they, are there places, you know, are, are you seeing a lot of these facilitating groups? Are they in churches or are they community type groups? Are you, are you having much luck partnering with churches? Yeah, I, probably half of them meet at a church. The number one reason, it's free. You don't have to pay rent or, you know, usage fee. So if there's people listening to this and you're an atheist or you hate God for whatever reason, A... I hope you find Jesus someday, because <laughs> he's awesome. And B, you know, don't be afraid to go just because it's in a building that's called a church. It's probably being held there, this suicide support group, because it's free. Because it's free. That's why. Yeah. They're not going to alter call you. Or, not big money in, right. in the suicide right. prevention. Not, so charity. don't let that hold you back. But these groups I'm talking about are suicide-specific. We like to keep them that way. If you Google in Iowa, you could find billions of support groups where you can go talk about a, a death. But you're going to have somebody in a car wreck. You're going to have somebody who, right. you know, another accidental death from this. But these ones are very specific. Because it, I, we think suicide is unique. And, you know, if you're in just a normal grief group and one person's talking about cancer and one's Alzheimer and one's Parkinson and one's car wreck and then your suicide, you still feel kind of like these people don't understand me. 
So if you're in a specific group of suicide, suicide, everybody's there because of suicide, that makes it more powerful. So I'm gonna put you on the spot just for a minute. Um, I know in some of the people that I've spoken with who have stepped away from their faith a little bit, you know, and, and sometimes drastically stepped away and, you know, at one time were believers and now have lost their mother, their father, you know, and, and the couple that come to mind for me aren't even necessarily a, a suicide, just a loss of somebody. So I imagine with that dramatic impact, it probably happens within within the group of, of suicide survivors. Um, how, how do you think that if somebody comes to you and they say, Ryan, I've been in church my whole life, somebody close to me just committed suicide. God couldn't do this to me. It can't be real. You know, why would God allow this to happen? Those same struggles you went through. How do you talk to that person? How do you, how do you rationalize that this loving God mm -hmm. can, can allow things like this to happen? That's a toughie. I know. That's why I'm telling you. I'm putting you on the spot. So, I mean, we can come back and, and circle back to it too. Well, I'll work through it. It's, and first off, my wife's in our home right now, sick, 20 yards away from me, but she would agree, I'm not perfect. This, oh, I'm far from it too. I'm not a model of, of Christian idealism. We could sit here and talk about my sins for a day. Um, I'm currently reading Craig Groschel, Groschel, uh, he writes a lot of awesome books, and that's the chapter I just read was... I love God, but why do bad things happen or something like that? So I'm currently kind of stuck in that. I think about that too. I think my faith is strong, but there's some days I'm in a prayer or running or something. I'm like, come on, God, what, why, what is going on? But with grow, you know, maturity and growth and time, I will come back to God is just good. You know, I don't understand why my mom got cancer and great woman. Why couldn't that happen to dirtball 70-year-old woman that has no positive impact on the world? Why, God, why are you taking this awesome disciple away from us? Um, but if you really dig into Scripture and are devoted and just give time to the Holy Spirit... God is really good. It's it's hard to explain to people until they accept it and live it. Life's tough. We both know that. Yeah. It, you know, I'm 41 and doing all this work, and some days just suck. And you're like, man, God, this. Give me the lottery ticket or something. This have I not done enough work? You know. Yeah. But then I'll read Paul or something. I'm like, geez, he wrote most of these books of the Bible from prison. And that really sends me back to, okay, Ryan, <laughs> you got it pretty good. Yeah. You're living in Ankeny, Iowa with an awesome wife and three kids, and God is really good. It's a hard, it's a hard answer. I kind of danced around it. It's, you just got to commit. It, it's believing. I believe in this God that I can't see. I believe Jesus died on a cross. I wasn't there. Do, how do I know this 100% happened? Well, yeah. I feel it. That's why. Yeah. Maybe I'm totally wrong, and I will waste 40 years of life 
just trying to help other people. I think but, that's a that's a good way to do it. There's a whole lot worse things you could do for 40 years, right? You know, and, and I kind of I fall into the same. You know, that's a that's a really hard thing to explain. Um, you know, but I look at in my life some of the really hard decisions and hard things and and troublesome things that I've had to experience. And, you know, the only way that I can sometimes rationalize those are that they've prepared me for certain other events. Right. You know, I've I've been able to to meet with people of all walks. You know, I mean, I can go and feel comfortable with, you know, somebody who's destitute and then walk in in a in a suit and sit down and meet with people who are far more affluent than than me you know and and i have that ability to be able to do those things because of the life experiences that i've had um you know it's prepared me for certain things and and i hope that you know people take i mean it's hard to think of a a loss like that as a preparation you know it's a lot easier when when you made poor decisions and and looked at that as a preparation because the only person that i was hurting was myself right Um, but you know i think that you know obviously your loss has prepared you for doing what you're doing now and hopefully impacting a vast amount of people that maybe you would have never been able to to reach out to right and and be you know kind of an example you know i mean you you know we all have our our sins or our problems or you know our issues but you know it's uh in in this specific realm, I think you know it. You know what I mean. You're you're a man of faith. You are doing a lot of good work for for the church, for God, for the community, you know, and for people who are lost and hurting. You know, whether they are people of faith or not. I mean, it's you know, I think it's inspirational. It's nice. I can't so. keep up with all the thoughts in my head as you preach, as you preach wisdom. Spit them it's, out, uh, man. That's why we're here. Well, it's you know the day I found Roger's body, which also if you're a Pearl Jam fan, which I am, ten it's, or something. It's very very 1992. One of the greatest <laughs> albums ever, and I'm a Jesus follower, but I listen to Pearl Jam. Uh, the song Jeremy is about a kid and like South Carolina that walked into school, shot himself in front of everybody on the same date, January 8 of 91. So a lot of times when I go to speak somewhere to a crowd, I'll listen to Jeremy and then pray to my (laughs) Pearl Jam Jeremy, then talk to God, then go talk, because it's so connected. Why do I like Pearl Jam? And then, wow, that was the same date as one of the biggest days of my life. Yeah, It's powerful. But the Roger's death day, you know, I kind of refer to it as worst day, best day. I've had better days in my life, marriage, children, but in a huge look at my whole life, that's a huge impact on me for what I do every single day. It set a direction for you. Right. It just took a while to get on the path. Um, The work I do with AFSP, I mean, I'm, you know, 40 hours a week, whatever. I'm not bragging. I'm a pretty humble guy, actually. Who better to do this in Iowa than someone that's walking with Christ, lives in a town that our God is, what do you got? You got a new boat? You got how much your house costs? You got a big TV? I'm, that stuff doesn't even entice me. 
So I think I'm in the perfect role. Does it suck a lot of days? Do I get the mail and where's my paycheck? <laughs> you know? Oh, it didn't come oh, again. <laughs> I don't detassel corn till next July, so yeah. that's when I get paid. But it's you know, it's a sacrifice, but over the course of many years, how many people, just one guy, will I be able to get volunteer or have a conversation with or anything? If I can just help one person, which I, we have already done, I think this is a lifetime journey for me. No, you know, we've we've kind of we made a little light about your volunteering and in in the positions that you are in. If people are out there and they want to volunteer, where is a great place for them to volunteer? Can they volunteer with you? Can they volunteer with your other organizations? What what can they what can they do? Yeah, where we're at now, they got to find me, and this is what most of my time is spent doing. Doing so, is so emailing. how can how can somebody find you? Uh, alive and running Iowa.com. Okay. Alive and running Iowa.com or afsp.org or you can is there a place through that national website to easily get they'll to you? find you just got to follow the right you get to iowa and once you get to the iowa page there's my phone number okay. which is a sometimes a curse but it's out there so <laughs> you get a lot of phone calls um i can give my phone number i don't if, you, if you're comfortable with yeah. it yeah yeah these are all good people, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure they're, they're listening. All, they're to all quality. Pastor Phil. Oh, <laughs> Everybody's in trouble then. Six four one nine nine zero four nine five seven. Give it one more time so they can get a pen and write it down. Six four one nine nine zero four nine five seven. That's mine. Making sure I didn't give my wife's number because yeah, <laughs> it's very similar. She uh, she would be in for a surprise. Yeah, but that's yeah. Where we're at now is I'm kind of the puppeteer, maybe. And as we grow, kind hopefully positioning people in the places they need more to be. committees will form, and I will establish trusting people, which is hard for me to do. A lot of people rise up. I want to do this, 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 and then you give them three objectives and a year later you're like how you doing on those <laughs> well i'm busy i'm busy really yeah. busy so yeah it kind of goes through me but okay. oh, we love volunteers we love people that give money because afsp is huge in research and the more research we can find solutions to what's what's going on in our so, heads so now you know there's always people who who are busy and sometimes are able to contribute more with finances than than their time. Um, is there a place at Alive and Running where they can contribute now that you're a five hundred one c three? There will be soon. Okay, we're working on it. Actually, okay. when I'm done talking to you, my wife and I are going to the bank to do some stuff, and then we have to get it on our website soon. So hopefully, by the time this airs, yeah, we'll have something, and uh, that'll be that'll be good. And then actually, your race. When, when is your race? Can people sign up? Can yeah. people volunteer? What, what, are your, what are your dreams for seeing this race evolve and grow? Sure. That's aliveandrunningiowa.com. Man, I don't know the date. It's in June. It's, it's always Father's Day weekend. Okay. So you look at June. Father's Day is on a Sunday. 
So the race is one day before. On that Saturday. And then on Friday night is a lantern ceremony. So if you go to the website, you can check that out. But volunteers were usually pretty good. Small town Iowa, Dunkerton. A lot, of, a lot of casseroles. <laughs> People, there's good food. People rise up. Usually we're never short on volunteers. And I also take youth group kids from Ankeny. We make that a mission trip. You've done that. So they come for 24 hours. So we really don't need volunteers. I, we take money anytime. Take and runners, I, take donations. Runners, walkers, just come. It's it's powerful. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I think, you know, like I've said before, I think what you're doing is, is fantastic. I mean, there's there's very few people I know who are as invested in their passions as, as what you're doing. Um, I guess let's let's leave some people with some some ideas. If if there are people who are contemplating suicide, what can we what can we leave them with? I mean, mm-hmm. I'll try to word it right because I've been there. You know, I've found my best friend's body twenty six years ago. Where I'm at now, it's daily. I'm getting phone calls or emails of either I lost someone to suicide or, you know, crisis phone calls of, hey, I got your number, I'm gonna go drive my car into a semi. And that's gotta so, be shocking, you know what I mean? Like, so, how do you talk, you know, talking to somebody like that is-, is That's tough. That's a, that's, a, that's a life or death decision. Right. You know I mean, and that's a right. lot of weight. Yes, it is. Um, that's why there's 1-800-273-TALK. That's a strong national with trained counselors. I mean, that's their job. That's what they do every single day. you're just a guy. I'm just a guy walking his kids to school and getting a phone call like that. That's, if I didn't have God on my team, I would just fall down on the ground because yeah. that's heavy. It's a lot. So what, which direction were we supposed to go no. with this? Oh, what can people do? Yeah, you know, just, uh, you know, that idea that there's a, there's a place for them to reach out to you know, and it, things will get better, you know, but, but There's, really, really that talk, right. that initial conversation, get it out of your mind, talk to somebody. Yeah. I've repeated websites. I've given the one eight hundred two seven three talk If you feel that way, find a church, go talk to someone. If you don't want to go to a church, call a national number. If you don't want to do that, you have to have a relative or friend. You have to tell somebody. Because I've been in that space where you, I call it tunnel vision. You just, there's no hope. Everything sucks. Every day sucks. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to end it. It's really hard to get out of that unless someone helps you. Because if that's all you're thinking and experiencing every minute of your life, that is most likely going to end in suicide. You've got to tell somebody. Do not be ashamed. I'm openly talking about this giving my phone number that I was suicidal for many years. Yeah. I there's stigma that we've created. I don't care. We got to break that down. Cuz life is good. I'm 41. It's not perfect, but life can be really good. And I would have missed out on a lot of good stuff. Yeah. If I was gone. So. Well, is there anything else that we can put out there today? Is there anything that you want to wrap up with before we before we close this thing down? Just rise up, people. We need volunteers, and the the legislation is a big, huge step where I need people. 
to, to get reform in Iowa and the U.S. And the biggest thing people should remember is, you know, God is good no matter what. There will be horrible days, stressful days, not enough sleep days, divorce, whatever. Bad things happen. But if you just focus on God is good, which he is, we agree on that. Yeah, for sure. It, it just makes life so much easier with that foundation just carrying you all the time. So hopefully if they get nothing else out of this, besides people texting me all the time, <laughs> it's God is good and you got to walk with Christ daily or it's a, you're just going to be crawling and staggering through life because it's, then you are empty. It's hard. I couldn't agree more. I'm sold. All right, Ryan. Thanks a ton, man. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. You know, remember, you can always uh, continue the conversation with us on Facebook at the God Watch Podcast or visit us online at godwatchlive.com. And uh, have a great week. Be blessed.